0: This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on IIEA.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts. So I'm delighted to welcome you to this IIEA webinar. The IIEA is honoured to be joined today by Lord Patton of Barnes, Chris Patton, who has made time in his diary to be with us today. Uh, I'm Bobby McDonough, former... Irish uh, diplomat and I'm delighted to have been asked to chair this event. Lord Patton will be speaking about China's international role and its evolution in recent decades and in that context he will talk about the actions of China in Hong Kong and give us his thoughts on how the UK and the international community should respond. Lord Patton will speak for about 20 minutes or so and then we will go into Q&A with our audience. The whole event will last one hour Uh, and Chris has told me that he's very open to taking questions on topics other than China, including on British politics. So you'll be able to join the discussion using the Q&A function on Zoom, which you should see on your screen. So please feel free to send in your questions throughout the session as they occur to you, and we will take as many of them as possible after Lord Patton's presentation. Chris has also said that he's happy for the whole presentation and Q&A to be on the record. And please feel free to join the discussion on Twitter using the handle at IIEA. Chris Patton is truly somebody who needs no introduction. He is probably the only person who during his lifetime has been addressed as Honourable Member, Minister, Secretary of State, Governor, Commissioner, Chairman, Lord and Chancellor. As far as today's topic is concerned his periods as the last Governor of Hong Kong and as European Commissioner for External Relations are of particular relevance. And of course in Ireland we always remember Chris's role in bringing peace to this island, including as chair of the Independent Commission on Policing for Northern Ireland. So Chris, I'm delighted to give you the floor.
1: Ambassador, thank you very much indeed and thanks for the invitation to talk to this uh, um, important and interesting group again, which I've done in the past. They're not uh, uh, using technology to do so, but thank you very much for the invitation. I've been asked to, to do China in up in less than 20 minutes which requires me to do what um, to give you what Dennis Healy used to call a tour de gloss. Um, uh, I'll obviously um, skim over some things but I thought I'd try to set um, Hong Kong in the context of what I say more generally about about China. Um, The handover of Hong Kong to China from Britain Um, as a result of the fact that the lease on part of the new territories was only signed for 99 years. The assumption being, I suppose, that 99 round was both politically and morally difficult, both for China and for Britain. Um, Politically difficult because um, for both parties, there was some embarrassment. Embarrassment in the way that Hong Kong had been acquired in the 19th century, partly as a result of the um, way in which the imperial powers had behaved towards the uh, Qing dynasty, partly because of um, Britain's attempts to pay for um, Chinese tea um, and pay for India uh, by uh, globalizing uh, China through the forced sale of opium to China. I'm slightly overdoing it, um, but not by, by much. Um, So it was politically difficult for both sides because it was an embarrassing element in both both parties' history. Morally difficult for other reasons. Morally difficult for the Chinese because more than half the population of Hong Kong were themselves refugees from Chinese communism. um, Right from the beginning, Uh, the people who brought the watch trade, textiles, shipping to Hong Kong from Shanghai. But later on, more than half the population were people who would fled um, the events of modern communist history, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, um, the, uh, the, the tyrannous behavior of Mao and some of his successors. Um, they had swum to Hong Kong, they clamber over, over razor barbed wire to get to this safe haven, rather humiliatingly from for, the Chinese, for Chinese nationalist communists, uh, rather humiliatingly, um, a British colony. Difficult morally for Britain, because unlike every other colony, we weren't, or pretty well every other colony, we weren't preparing Hong Kong for independence with democracy and the usual constitutional kit borrowed from uh, Professor Jennings. We weren't uh, doing that, we weren't able to do it. Every time there were suggestions that we should go faster in democratization in Hong Kong, and in my view, we should have gone rather faster, but every time it happened, the Chinese would would line up and say, you mustn't do that because it'll give people in Hong Kong the idea that they're gonna be treated like Singapore or Malaysia, uh, and come 1997, they're gonna be independent. They're not, they're coming back to us. So there was a sort of um, malign agreement between some in Britain and some in the business community in Hong Kong, that developing democracy would be a bad thing and pressure from the Chinese Communist Party. Against that background, Deng Xiaoping's idea of one country, two systems, which was originally designed to try to accommodate Taiwan was a brilliant way through. Um, And it was incorporated in an international treaty called the Joint Declaration and then was translated into a sort of mini constitution for Hong Kong written by China called the Basic Law. And what it basically did was to guarantee Hong Kong's freedoms, Hong Kong's rule of law, Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy to borrow from the texts from 1997 to 2047. Um, and uh, that would be the backdrop to, um, to uh, uh, Britain's transfer of sovereignty. Um, we did. Quite a bit in the run-up to 1997 to try to embed um, bill of rights uh, issues like the introduction of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which was actually put into Hong Kong's basic law. Bill of rights, getting rid of some of the old colonial legislation, which had been used, for example, during the Cultural Revolution riots in 1967. Uh, we did all that. We we didn't actually um, increase the pace of democratization or increase the pace of the introduction of directly elected seats to LegCo. Uh, the only thing I did was to try to make the elections as fair and free as possible by increasing the number of votes in functional constituencies. In other words, the constituencies which um, reflected the, law, the lawyers or the agricultural workers or the textile workers. Come 1997, um, I think we were mostly quite confident that Hong Kong wouldn't do too badly. And the conference was, um, I think, justified for the first 10 or a dozen years. Not everything well, but by and large, China kept to its side of the bargain. Um, uh, there were one or two um, shortcomings. It slowed down the promises it had made, reversed the promises it had made on the development of democracy. There were occasional interferences. And in 20, 2003, there was an attempt to introduce a national security law, which led to demonstrations by about 500,000 people and eventually to the fall of the then chief executive and they backed off. Now, this opens up an issue which has been much talked about, the the suggestion that Hong Kong needs a national security law because that was promised or suggested in the the, uh, basic law, Hong Kong's mini constitution, and was never was never uh, done. It's absolute nonsense. There are lots of laws in Hong Kong dealing with treason, um, dealing with terrorism. It's the crimes audience. I mean, it's the crimes audience and other things which have led to the arrest of um, about 900,000 people since the demonstrations began uh, last year. Um, what China has objected to is that it hasn't been allowed to define what national security should be for the people of Hong Kong. Now, things went pretty well, I think, until um, Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping is, I think, a different leader to his predecessors. I've dealt in my time both as governor and Hong Kong with with Jiang Zemin. I was his personal guest in in China on a trip with my wife, with Zhu Rongji, who's the cleverest um, international public servant I've met, with Wen Jiabao, who was prime minister, with Hu Jintao I've worked with them all and they were tough and their officials were very very difficult to to negotiate with but I think this is a different leader Chris something Yep. Yeah. yes yeah, I think sorry. it froze
0: there for I think it froze about about 30 seconds ago so you could
1: continue again okay can you could you hear me now yes can you hear you now yeah okay um Xi Jinping is very different he's an old-fashioned dictator um, and I think he's assembled more power and more centralization for two reasons. First of all, I think the leadership were spooked by Bo Xilai's attempt to muscle his way into the Standing Committee of the Politburo a few years ago. Bo Xilai is the the former mayor of Chongqing, whose wife, you may recall, uh, was um, sentenced for murdering a British businessman. Um, And the other thing which I think is, is apparent is increasing nervousness during the period of presidency that the Chinese Communist regime was starting to lose its grip over things um, as the economy was opening up as technology was increasing information flows so I think uh, Xi Jinping has been determined both to crack down on what's happening in China and as part of that to turn the screw in Hong Kong I think what he has also done recently is to take advantage of the fact that the rest of the world, is focused uh, on the uh, fighting the coronavirus which of course became worse because of China's failure to meet its international obligations and um, agreed after the SARS epidemic um, to declare what was happening earlier the international health regulations of 2005 to 2007 um, and I think that Xi Jinping has been trying to take advantage of, of the fact that everybody's attention elsewhere and also per- perhaps taking account of the importance of trying to whip up nationalist sentiment to sustain the communist regime, um, he's, he's behaved um, pretty loutishly all around the region and around the world. Somebody the other day, when we were talking about the importance of standing up for Hong Kong, for moral and political reasons, somebody actually, the chairman of Chatham House, said that uh, if we wanted to rebuild the economy, the last thing we should do is pick a, pick a fight with China. The point is that China is picking a fight with everybody. It's picked a fight with Indians, with 20 uh, Indians, uh, recently soldiers killed on the frontier. It's picked a fight with Japan, it's picked a fight with the Malaysians, the Vietnamese, the Filipinas, by the way it's been behaving in the South China Sea, which it claims sovereignty over, despite the fact that the Hague Tribunal um, said that that was uh, was not the case. Uh, it's picked a fight with Australia because Australia pressed for a a full independent inquiry um, into the origins of the coronavirus. It's picked a fight with Canada um, because of a, an extradition case involving um, an executive of Huawei in Canada. So it's actually gone in for hostage diplomacy rather as though it was one of those um, ramshackle uh, states in the Middle East or Western Asia. It picked fights all around the world. And in Hong Kong, it's decided to double down on on the issue of national security, and threatened the uh, the territory with a national security law, which has finally been been delivered um, today. The British Foreign Secretary today, in a very precise and legalistic way, which I think was sensible, set out all the ways in which this proposed national security law infringes the joint declaration um, and infringes the basic law. And imposed on Hong Kong, partly because the Chinese communists didn't think that they were capable of getting it through the Legislative Council anyway, want to disqualify legislators who don't accept the national security law in order to stop pan-democrats winning in the elections in, in September. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it brings in uh, national security agents to actually supervise things in Hong Kong. It cracks down on on the media it cracks down uh, on the on the internet and um, if there are aspects of territory, of, of extraterritoriality in it so that you can be prosecuted under it even if you're not um, Chinese or a Hong Kong citizen and um, you can be prosecuted for things that uh, you said or did outside um, uh, Hong Kong it would appear the whole legislation is drafted I, I reread last summer on holiday I re- re-read George Orwell's 1984, and this legislation, when you read it, reads right like reads read, read just like um, an Orwellian uh, description of how you make the law. Um, the crimes are not specified except by the Chinese when they want to specify them, and it's plainly the case that some cases will be taken out of Hong Kong and tried in China and dealt with in China. So we go back. To the whole issue of extradition, which which triggered the protests last year, which had 1.7 million people uh, on the streets, uh, and which led to the uh, an increase in concerns about democracy and increasing concerns about about policing, which produced, I think, some of the turmoil and turbulence, or most of the turmoil and turbulence of last year. It also um, makes clear that from now on, the chief executive advised by Chinese national security officials will choose the judges to uh, cr- to try these cases under the national security law. There is no guarantee that the trials will be in the open. There's no guarantee that there will be there will be uh, jury trials. So, in in almost every respect, uh, I think this is a flagrant assault on the rule of law. It tries to to meld, or not to meld, but it tries to oversee. Um, the the common law with Chinese law, um, and uh, it 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 threatens a lot of the things which have made Hong Kong so successful and and prosperous. Um, It's already the case that a lot of hedge funds are talking about how they can do their job um, if they're not absolutely certain that when they report on the real scale, for example, of uh, of uh, China's um, unemployment or China's um, trade figures or whatever, that they'll find themselves potentially um, threatened under this law for uh, for saying things which the Chinese government doesn't like. It looks as though even complaining that the police, um, uh, uh, about police behavior in Hong Kong, and I know quite a lot about public order policing because of what Bobby mentioned uh, earlier in Northern Ireland. It looks as though even doing that will be regarded as whipping up hatred uh, of uh, Beijing. Altogether, I think it's pretty ghastly, and I think uh, it's not only uh, uh, not only not only ends one country two systems, but I think threatens to be very bad for um, Hong Kong's ability to continue its role as a very important Asian financial hub. I could two or three other things about it, as I said at the outset, I think this has to be seen as a pattern of behaviour by the Chinese. Uh, communist regime. And on the whole, it's gone away with this behavior over the years um, by picking off countries one at a time. Australia one week, Canada the next, Britain the next, um, India the next, uh, Japan or or others um, the following week. And I think it's very important that we stand up together, not starting a new Cold War with China, but just making absolutely clear that we will call out China when it behaves badly. Um, And I think Britain has a particular responsibility in helping uh, to ensure that that happens. In some respects, it's made more difficult by the fact that the so-called leader of the West, um, the uh, American president uh, or the present American president doesn't seem to believe very much in allies and alliances. But I do think it's remarkable the extent to which Chinese behaviour has solidified opinion in Washington about how to deal with China, just as it's done so, just as it's done in in the UK. To find myself in the same uh, in the same uh, uh, argument or on the same side in argument with really Ian Duncan Smith or whatever is a new and wonderful experience for me. But that's thanks thanks to China because we find ourselves, for example, supporting the UK government as have 26 other countries in the human rights, in the UN Human Rights Council in the last day or so, not only criticizing what China is doing in Hong Kong, but also criticizing what seems to be the beginning of genocide in Xinjiang with forced sterilization, forced uh, IUD, uh, forced abortions, all of which has been reported extremely fully and very well by the Associated Press who will doubtless. Doubtless suffer the consequences for telling the truth. So it's not surprising that uh, the EU even has found uh, it, it able to, it itself able to make a very critical um, set of statements about what, what uh, China has been doing. Um, Australia, Canada, um, US, UK, the G7 as a whole, Japan, India, and India has just reacted to uh, Chinese behaviour by uh, banning, I think, 59 different Chinese apps like TikTok, which were previously um, uh, very successful in India. So I repeat, I'm not in favor of, of a Cold War with China. What I am in favor of is what um, an old uh, and very good uh, international relations expert, some of you will be old enough to remember him, called Gerald Siegel, who died, alas, um, ridiculously young, who used to talk, he used to talk about constrainment about working together so that when China was doing things you approved of uh, you'd uh, b- react very well to it and there's all sorts of things we need to negotiate with China whether um, on climate change or preventing the next pandemic of antimicrobial resistance those are things we have, where we have to work uh, with China but when China behaves badly we need to contain we need to call it out and we need to work together uh, in order to uh, Uh, Try to ensure that China understands there are consequences for what it's doing. I think in Britain at the moment there's been a complete change in the debate about Huawei partly because of um, seeing how China has been behaving and increasing disbelief that a company which is as involved as Huawei is in the surveillance state in Xinjiang can't be regarded as just any other multinational. So um, China is a great country, a very important country, um, but the Chinese Communist Party is a threat um, and uh, I think it's particularly dangerous for all of us that China has demonstrated with what it's been doing in the last few months, and particularly in Hong Kong, that you can't trust it. Turn gloss over. Thank you very much, Chris. That's, thank you. That's a
0: fascinating presentation. Uh, we have questions coming in here now. So um, uh, there's a question from Rory Quinn, uh, whom you probably know, he's former leader of the Labour Party, former Minister of Finance. I and have his,
1: over there, there, behind me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he says that you were, uh, first, in fact, you were instrumental in, in presiding over the transfer of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty. And he asks, what were your expectations at the time? Did you expect the new arrangement
1: would stay in place without any change? I hoped it would. Um, I didn't ever really think that um, the equivalent of the Chinese KGB would uh, um, be given um, uh, a carte blanche in uh, Hong Kong, which is happening. And I didn't expect that the tanks would be rolling in as they did in Tiananmen Square. Um, I thought the worst I thought would happen would be that um, Hong Kong would simply become the... Richer city in China, um, but without the freedoms which had made it so special. I'm now um, more concerned because I think some of the things that have made Hong Kong so uh, extraordinarily well off, though I think that that economic success hasn't been particularly well managed in the last few years, and the social inequity in Hong Kong has grown quite quite uh, considerably. I now worry that some of the things that are happening, Will actually undermine Hong Kong's prosperity, not because of the Americans, for example, deciding that they can no longer treat Hong Kong as being economically autonomous or different than China, though that will be um, hurtful um, a little, but because of what Beijing is doing. and I think that that I think that um, uh, Xi Jinping regards Hong Kong as representing all the things he hates. When I spoke about Peter Sutherland um, in uh, Dublin a few months ago, I quoted a document which uh, Xi Jinping had sent out to all his um, uh, political and government officials um, in 2013, called again, by the Orwellian title, Communique Number no. 9. In which he listed all the appalling things which liberal democracy represented and why the Chinese Communist Party had to be vigilant in fighting them. And when you look at them, most of them um, exemplified institutionalized in Hong Kong freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religious worship, um, c- c- very healthy civic organizations, um, uh, proper education. Um, not um, uh, the sort of education which will um, convince people that TNN men never happen. Those are the sort of things which I think the Chinese Communist Party finds so dangerous in Hong Kong. Um, and uh, I hope they will be able to survive though with the present leadership in Hong Kong, it's pretty questionable. Thank you. Could I just ask anybody who's
0: submitting uh, questions to identify yourselves and to give your affiliation? Uh, that would be very helpful. I have a question from Dan O'Brien, an economist with the IIEA, who asks How different are the US and European stances towards Hong Kong,
1: and who is closest to getting it right at this stage? Well, it depends whether you believe John Bolton or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I suspect that a a new American administration and and Europe could work together well on. On, uh, uh, on Hong Kong and on China. Um, I, was, I did a, a seminar like, like this the other day um, with Orville Shell and a group of Americans and a group of European parliamentarians and was very struck except in this security area um, where there were some differences by the commonality of view on what's happening in China. And I think it's, it's very important that that continues I think inevitably, European statements, and I've said this before when I used to be partly responsible for trying to police them, European statements on difficult foreign policy issues tend to be very strong on nouns and adjectives, but rather weak on verbs. And I think that the, that the statement which came out the other day from the European Union on Hong Kong was in that sense, remarkably strong by European standards. And I very much welcomed what both the President of the Commission and the President of the Council had to say. There are, of course, some some, uh, uh, who are um, uh, dragging their feet on these issues. I think there are one or two um, EU countries which have been um, seduced by the hope of vast funds under the Belt and Roads Initiative. Um, uh, which um, I think is actually a a pretty good example of debt diplomacy by by China as people like the Pakistanis and and others are discovering at the moment. But by and large, I think it's possible to shape a sensible policy uh, on China, which is in the same ballpark as what a sensible American administration would be doing. Look, our value system, even with a with a president like this one, is closer to that in uh, United States um, than it is with China. Um, we don't want to have to choose between the United States and China. Um, I'm sure that a Biden administration. You think about the people who would be part of a Biden administration. You know, you'd have people like Bill Burns and Susan Rice and so on uh, making the, doing calling the shots in terms of international policy. And I think that would mean much closer to the sort of view which Europeans have of the world. So I, I don't um, think that uh, there is there are aspects of Sinophobia which would um, separate us because I think Sinophobia is, is appalling, is, 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 is as bad as any um, racist phobia. But I think we shouldn't have too much difficulty in finding common ground in our dislike of Chinese communism and our dislike of the way that this regime behaves in relation to international rules and international agreements. Thank you, I'm going to take a question um, on a subject other than
0: China now, the questions are still coming in on China. Um, Cathy O'Toole, who was of course a member of your patent patent commission uh, on establishing the new structures for police in Northern Ireland and Robert Pearce, the secretary to the commission had an article in yesterday's Washington Post which suggested that some of the structures which you recommended uh, for policing in Northern Ireland could now be applied in some cities in the United States to address the current policing
1: issues there. Do you have any thoughts on that suggestion? Yeah, yes I, I, I do. I mean it's it's interesting that when we were writing that report we had a couple of, two or three visits, um, number of members of our team um, to the United States to discuss policing um, and finding of course that most of the police commissioners we were we were talking to in individual cities were from the Irish diaspora, rather like my stepfather's um, uh, uh, uncles, um, people like Bill Bratton and so on. But you go to city after city uh, and find that the that the, um, the commissioner of police came from an Irish from an Irish heritage, um, and it's a terrible sadness uh, what's happened in some American cities, and I think the. The, the, the two things which I would most underline, which were important, though not uncontroversial, or well, three, first of all, the definition of the human rights responsibilities of police services, which came to some people as a tremendous shock. There was, as I recall, um, a leading article, and I think it was The Times, not even The Telegraph, saying, what did we mean by all this? I mean, p- policing was about um, law and order and bonking people on the head. It wasn't about human, the wet human rights issue. Secondly, I think another issue that we got absolutely right was the importance of a vigorous police complaints um, body, something that would be nice to have in, in Hong Kong. And I think that is, is really important. And thirdly, uh, the other thing, which I think is, is um, uh, incredibly important is recruitment. Probably the most controversial thing we did was uh, was, uh, going away from uh, equal, um, from recruitment simply on the basis of uh, what um, recruiting officers thought made sense and trying to ensure that there was a specific proportion of the police service recruited who were Catholic. Um, Otherwise we'd never have moved away from a situation in which only 7% of the police force were, were Catholic. And I think we did very well, getting up to about thirty percent today and I think that sometimes you have to intervene in that sort of affirmative way in order to really change an institution and change it change it culturally um I think the the fact that our policing proposals have lasted is, is a great deal a result of the wisdom from Cathy O 'Toole from Bob himself who was the secretary of the commission from uh, um, Maurice Hayes from Peter Smith all of and John Smith who was a policeman himself a metropolitan deputy commissioner we had some we had a really good uh committee and um I'm it's I think the thing I'm proudest of doing the most difficult but also the proudest thing um I, I'm, I, I've been I've done I think um and uh it's sad to see um how much things seem to have gone backwards in some American cities. So just just on on that point in particular on race. Um, when I went to, the, to America for the first time in 1965 as a student, we were in Mon- Montgomery, Alabama, and there was a very tense atmosphere because um, a couple of weeks before, three University of Pennsylvania students had been shot dead um, in uh, civil rights demonstrations, and we happened to have picked up at the airport a car with universe with Philadelphia number plates so um, we were regarded with some suspicion. That was then. Then roll forward to the night that um, Obama was was elected and I happened to be in Hong Kong delivering a speech for a shed load of money um, alongside Colin Powell who I'd worked with uh, when he was when I was External Affairs Commissioner in, in, uh, in Brussels. So I knew him very well and had a huge admiration for him. When Colin I was watching the Obama election, he was crying, an extraordinary transformation from 1965, from civil rights demonstrations to electing a a, a person of color, um, a black American president. And I think it's hugely sad that things seem to have been going backwards in some respects in the last few years, Because it matters to all of us because if we're going to be able to be more formidable in the case we put for liberal democracy, not only in relation to China, but in relation to what's happening in Europe, if we're gonna be more formidable about that, about that, we have to be much better at dealing with the, um, with the beams or moats in our own eye and dealing with situations in our own societies.
0: Thank you very much. Lots of fascinating questions coming in. Alan Dukes, um, also a former finance minister and former Fine Gael leader, uh, asks, and I suppose this is partly in the context of the fact Ireland has just been elected to the Security Council of the UN for next year. He said, would there be any benefit in escalating concerns about Hong Kong to the UN Security Council level?
1: Yes, there would. Though, Of course, it would. they'd be <laughs> they'd be vetoed by by China and Russia. But I, I think in every respect, actually trying to elevate concern in international organizations is really important. Seven UN, as I think I said earlier, seven UN human rights organizations have raised concerns about what's happening in China. 51 UN special rapporteurs have said there should be um, a, uh, a special UN envoy uh, on, uh, on Hong Kong. Um, I think it's really important that we should raise these issues. Um, and of course, it's true that the Chinese communist, the wolf warriors, um, won't like it. But I think we actually have to show them that we're not afraid to stand up for ourselves. Otherwise, they'll go on rolling over us, um, just as the Russians did to a very considerable extent in the wake of uh, Putin's KGB takeover of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I much recommend Catherine Belton, uh, her recent book on, on Putin and Putin's people. So you get rolled over by by bullies unless you stand up to them um, and that that's that's um a lesson which in europe we should remember from agadir from uh from the saarland and in the in terms of united kingdom history the way we behaved in the 1920s in relation to ireland
0: chris there's another uh, question on a different topic from terry neal who's a member of the board of the IIA, and he says that a recent British speaker at the IAEA suggested that the Tory party has now become the English national party. Is there truth
1: in his comment? Yeah, there is some, there is some truth in it. Um, and, uh, I think it's, it's deeply disturbing. Um, I think that, um, it, it's something which is, which is crept up, um, partly under the guise of concern about Britain's role in the world and Brexit. But I think there is some some truth in it, um, and I think that's worrying if 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 you are as concerned as I am to keep the United Kingdom together. Um, when you look at the way the coronavirus has been handled, um, I'm not sure how many observers would put up their hands and say that they thought it had been better handled by um, Mr. Johnson than by Nicola Sturgeon. Um, uh, I think that. Um, Uh, There are clearly differences, the way it's been handled in Wales and Northern Ireland and the way it's been handled in in England, Uh, and and to a very considerable extent, the vocabulary, the language used, um, has been uh, related to, I think, uh, English nationalism. I think we suffer in uh, England, Um, we're trapped between two views of our history. One of which, um, and we've seen it recently in the arguments about the, the Cecil Rhodes statue, which I know about all too much. Mm-hmm. There are some people who think that everything we did in the past was terrible, um, that that the um, that the British Empire was one crime after another, and you can think of all sorts of things which were awful, but not everything is bad. On the other hand, there are those who think we're exceptional; that everything we've done has been brilliant, thanks to thanks to the English genius, and that's obviously rubbish, too. I just wish people knew a bit more history and were better at their history and understood the extent to which, for example, in relation to Europe, so much of our history has been intimately tied up with Europe. I'll give you one example. Um, Every country has these things of which it's fantastically proud and understandably. And one of the great landmarks in our history is the Battle of Waterloo. There's a great book by Brendan Sims on the Battle of Waterloo, in which he points out that 36% of the soldiers who began the battle, not not including Blucher at the end, 36% of the soldiers who began the battle, and particularly the soldiers who uh, uh, defended that farmhouse, La Sainte, were German speakers. That was their first language, they were Germans. So you could argue that the Battle of Waterloo was the first triumph of NATO. Now, of course, um, uh, Wellington was uh, an important figure, but it's an excellent example of how one thing after another, whether it's cultural or political or security, um, has our has English as well as Scottish and and Irish nationalities all tied up together. The 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 way in which I rem- I remember quite a lot of of the of the Northern Ireland Unionist culture, the way in which it tried to um, overlook the number of of rep- soldiers from the Republic who died in the First World War and the Second as well. A wonderful novel by by um, uh, by Sebastian Barry about it. A, a long way to go. So um, I th- I think there are there's a real problem for for British politicians in underlining the fact that we're not rubbishing our own country that we're proud of so much that um that, that britain's achieved but we're real about it and we we don't think that there's a sort of english exceptionalism if there is an english exceptionalism at the moment i'm afraid it's that we've i think dealt with the coronavirus exceptionally badly
0: yeah i'm not sure you could make a direct parallel between the battle of waterloo and the first manifestation of nato given that i think 30 percent of wellington's troops were from ireland so uh... I'd like to put two, two related questions to you. One is of my own, first one, and the second is from Noel Fahey, former Irish ambassador to Washington. Uh, I think you've written that the Chinese have used the COVID epidemic to break their commitments in Hong Kong. I just wondered to what extent it may have used Brexit also uh, with the weakening of the UK's international authority. And the second question from Noel Fahey is, would the UK now be able to take concrete action against China Given its preference for building its future on trading beyond Europe?
1: Well, let me, let me um, deal with that point first. Um, I'm very much in favour of what uh, um, the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee under Tom Tuggenhout, who's an excellent man, um, and others like Charles Parkin from the Royal United Services Institute have written and argued. I'm very much in favour of a British Prime Minister having a committee which coordinates our policy uh, on China and looks right across the board um, at, for example, at some of the arguments that are used which try to convince people that we can't do anything other than, than, um, and, than, than kowtow when um, China comes calling. People say, we're so dependent on Chinese investment, we can't, um, we can't uh, um, make a fuss about it. Well, um, there's, a, there's a very good report written by a man called Michael Pettit about suggesting that actually Chinese investment is investment, which would have come here anyway, because um, uh, the Chinese invest in things they can make money out of. The Chinese investment in Britain isn't a, a sort of bambouche bon from the um, uh, St. Vincent de Paul Society. The Chinese invest in things they can make money from. And as for trade, we have a huge deficit with China on trade. Are the size of our deficit with China, same size as our as our exports, and like every other, like every other country, or pretty well every other country, we have serious issues about intellectual property theft, about not being able to invest in China in the same way they can invest, often in a predatory way in Britain. And what we should look at is the number of things that we're a number of areas where we're dependent, excessively dependent on China, and decide whether we can't. Uh, uh make a change. We're we're excessively dependent in a lot of pharmaceutical areas. We're excessively dependent in in antibiotics, for example. We're probably excessively dependent in some technological spheres. So we have to look at those um economic um areas in order to make sure that we can act um as a more as a more independent country even while working with allies, allies who are prepared to behave sensibly with us and trade sensibly with us. We can't simply sign up to to deals which um, help the other person much more than they they help us. As for whether Brexit um, has contributed as well as the coronavirus, yeah, I think think to some extent. um, I think that um, a lot of people think that uh, the fact that we seem to be so keen on, on not just leaving the European Union, but leaving so on any conceivable terms, perhaps with some people thinking that whatever the consequences if they're bad they'll be blamed on the outcome of the coronavirus not um, looked at in their own right i think there is it must be the case that other countries look at that and say well um, maybe they're they <clears throat> maybe they'll need us more now than they than they did before but the idea that uh, that what we should be looking for in order to replace a market which is Forty-four percent or more of our exports. What we should be looking for is a fantastic trade deal with China. I'll tell you this: the poll this week on Monday, they asked about Brexit, but one of the questions they asked about was whether the answer was to have a really good trade deal with with um, China. Fewer than ten percent thought that was a good idea. Thirty-four percent said that any trade deal with China should be pursued with the very greatest caution. So what China is managing to do is to make us. More grown up about um, some of these issues, and I guess um, that in due course, though not without a good deal of pain, um, we'll find ourselves in that position as well because of Brexit.
0: There's quite a lot of questions coming in, Chris, about how, what sort of action can be taken to contain China. Bill Emmett, former editor of the Economist, uh, who is now a Brexit exile in Dublin, and and very welcome, uh, asked if next January the U.S. president is Joe Biden, what sort of containment could be undertaken with allies of China. And another person who spent 20 years in Hong Kong, uh, Jeremy Godfrey, uh, talks about how heartbreaking it is to our friends in Hong Kong and also wondering what sort of action can be taken for bad behaviour. So just in that whole area of uh, what action can be taken and how optimistic can we be that action is going to
1: have an impact? Well, I imagine um, and certainly hope that a Biden presidency would first of all reopen the question of America's participation in the TPP and the Trans-Pacific Partnership and would help to rejuvenate that idea and would also provide an option of European countries, I don't just mean EU countries, I include us as well, um, actually having um, some sort of relationship with TPP. I imagine that a Biden presidency would also be better at rejuvenating and reviving the Quad, Australia, um, uh, United States, Canada, India, um, in, uh, in, in which is a more of a security relationship. And I imagine it would also um, be better at re- reviving the Five Eyes um, relationship as well. But above all, um, what I would hope that that Mr. Biden would do, um, and his his colleagues would try to work with our partners in shaping um, an agenda for dealing with China which didn't press for another cold war but did as I said earlier um, reward China when it behaved well but made sure that there was a price to pay when it didn't and one of the what some of the prices you'd have to pay would be in terms of where the Chinese were allowed to invest uh, what they were allowed to do in your own countries. We know, we know from some of the work that's been done in Australia, from a, an, from a book that's been published there, and it's now being about to be published in the UK, despite legal action being taken against it, and it's been published, I think, in Canada, showing the way um, Chinese influence can distort institutions and in attempts to make sensible policy. So I don't think it's impossible for the world to actually work together but, but I, I I think it's pretty ins- pretty awful that when when um, uh, a Swedish citizen is is uh, arrested outside China, taken back to China and given ten or fifteen years in prison, when two innocent uh, Canadians are picked up because of an extradition extradition argument in in uh, in Canada, when the Australians um, are picked on and threatened with trade sanctions because of. Um, the fact that they've they've argued for a full who inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus when those things happen um I think the rest of the world or friends of those countries should stand up and say you can't behave like that to our friends on the whole we tend to sort of look the other way and hope that um hope that it all goes away um, and uh, I think it will only go away if China understands that there is a price to pay what was the second question sorry was that no, that, that,
0: that sort of, it, it was a series of questions about how, how, what sort of action can be taken um, if Biden is elected or otherwise, and how optimistic we can be that that's going to have uh, an impact on China.
1: I, I, I think that um, um, what's interesting is the way that um, the Chinese are solidifying political opinion critically um, against the communist regime. Um, I think it takes a certain sort of genius for them to have done that, um, as I said at the outset, but they've certainly achieved it, not least in in the US. The US, um, the the latest discussions in Congress are about fast tracking um, young protesters who were threatened with arrest uh, in Hong Kong, Um, a remarkable thing (laughs) to happen um, in in the American political system at the moment, but,
0: but very welcome. And uh, there's a question here from Ethna McDermott, who's a member of the IIEA. And it's a, it's a very broad question. I think only you could give a synthesized answer to it. But what are China's overall global current strategic aims
1: at the moment? Oh, oh the, the, main, the main aim, um, as Kevin Rudd is pointing out, the main aim of Chinese policy um, is for the party to stay in power. That's the aim. That's aim number one, um, aim number two, and aim number three. <laughs> um, and what it wants to do in order to ensure that that happens is to secure a narrative about its position in the world um which which uh, uh, w- which matches that of the chinese communist party and um, so um at the moment, I think it's very dangerous when we start talking about um China and the reasons and the reasons for standing up to it, not to allow that to play into um the uh, the Chinese communist um, narrative, that this is all about Sinophobia. Not about Sinophobia. We should actually be hugely grateful to those doctors in Wuhan, who bravely tried to believe at the outset of the uh, reporting coronavirus and was shut up by the, by the police for, for trying to do so. So it's not about Sinophobia, it's about a real phobia, about a totalitarian regime, which is cutting loose and behaving badly. I have a question from
0: uh, Louis Brennan, the Professor of Business Studies in Trinity uh, College, Dublin. And he asked, what is your view of the apparent willingness of some commercial interests in Hong Kong and
1: elsewhere to side with China? Well, I was asked this the other day, and I said, I guess if you were doing, if you were trying to run a business in Sicily in the 1940s or 50s or 60s, and the mafia came knocking on the door, um you paid up and i think that's rather what's been happening the idea that um when the appalling cy learn the former chief executive of, of hong kong said about hsbc that if they didn't back the security law you know there would be as think were financial trouble for them um, and this was well before the national security before anybody knew what was in it and um, the idea that we should have responded by saying the bank of china in london uh, unless you support us on this or that aspect of policy, and we'll make life difficult for you. I mean, but this is the way they do business. And should we go on putting up with this? I think there are two other things I would say about um, about the uh, way businesses behave. One, understanding that um, you have to you have to um, give the uh, mafia its due. Uh, two things. First of all. I hope people in Hong Kong, businesses in Hong Kong, will just remember from time to time that most of the people who run them, even the Chinese people who run them, most of the people who run them have another passport in their back pocket. And they should perhaps think a little more of those who work for them, who don't have the option of, of going elsewhere if it all goes wrong. And secondly, they should ask themselves What their customers and clients must think of the fact that they signed up to this law before anybody knew what was in it. Now, I hope they're more careful about their customers and their clients' financial affairs than they are about that. I hope they take rather more care. And I hope that they will um, ask themselves how much serious research they're going to be able to do um, on financial issues economic issues in China, if they're not allowed um, to say anything which is remotely critical of what's happening in China, I think it's gonna have a deadening effect on their ability to do the sort of research which any open and free market depends on. Hong Kong has done incredibly well, partly because of the combination of free flow of information, free flow of capital, and the rule of law. And once you start picking that apart, um, I think it becomes very dangerous
0: I have a question from Rose Dre, who works with the Department of Foreign Affairs and she 's interested to know what you think of the merger signals between the Foreign Office in London and diffit uh, and what that signals for u k international relations moving forward
1: well I think it's it 's pretty extraordinary in the middle of a of this um, crisis um, to uh, unscramble Diffid, which has been a huge success story. The other day um, shortly after saying how successful Diffid was and how much he wanted it to go on being successful the other day having said that um, Boris Johnson then referred to um, it as providing a cash point in the sky as though the money that we provide better than almost anybody else and more generously than most other people for fighting Poverty around the world for trying to stop babies dying, um, as though that was a um, cash point. You can always find, you can always find something that, that looks ridiculous, um, uh, paying for juggling lessons in the Lebanon or something. You can always find um, problems, um, but by and large, DFID has been a fantastic success story, and now it's going to be ripped, um, uh, ripped to pieces and stuffed into the foreign office now i used to be the minister for for the for for what is now dfid and um, before it was an independent cabinet level department and we used to, of course to cooperate with the foreign office um, and cooperated very well you can cooperate about your strategic intentions for aid flows without destroying the organisation which is doing it. it was i thought it was interesting the 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 example that um, Mr. Johnson gave for doing it was that um, uh, we spent so much more money on in Zambia than we did in the Ukraine. Well, we spent more money in Zambia than we do in the Ukraine because there are more poor people in Zambia and overseas development assistance is about helping the poor and there are criteria, um which are policed very carefully by the OECD for defining overseas development which take account of what you're doing so you can't for example define as overseas development assistance providing people in Ukraine however much there might be an argument for that so I, I, think, it's, I think it's intellectually muddled I think it's, I think it's a really unnecessary um, uh, fuss during the, during at a time when we should be really fo- focusing on dealing with the international implications of this virus and of Chinese behavior. Um, I think it threatens what is generally regarded as one of Britain's best exports, namely our Overseas Development Administration. And when you look at it, the only reason for doing it must be to transfer money from development assistance to other things. Um, And I think that's lamentable. Chris, I think we only have
0: time for one more question. So faced with quite a lot of questions, I'm going to ask one myself, um, which is uh, Boris Johnson became Prime Minister a year ago. uh, And I suppose as Chancellor of Oxford, you're used to the termly reports that students are given, um, whatever they're called in the different colleges. But uh, if you were giving uh, an annual report to Boris Johnson in his first year in office, uh, how would you summarise it?
1: Well, he was always, uh, he always clearly resented the fact that um, his contemporary David Cameron got a first um, and he got a second, um, which is one of the reasons why he called, even when he was prime minister, he called David Cameron a girly swat, as though he rankled, this had rankled all these years that he didn't get as good a degree as Cameron. I think he'd be lucky to get a second, don't you? Um, <laughs> I, I think that. Um, I think that to be charitable, Um, I don't think being prime minister during this period has tested his political skills and capacities, whatever they may be. Um, And uh, I commend to any who haven't read it, um, except with what it says about China, I commend an article about um, Boris Johnson, um, Birdie Mount. Um, who's no lefty in the current edition of the London Review of Books and I also recall what um, uh, well I I won't go into the other articles I I agree with I've never been as you know the greatest fan of of, uh, Boris Johnson but I hope he somehow gets written through this awful era Um, We've had at the moment one of the worst records in dealing with it in the world. It's called being world-beating. And I hope we don't follow that with one of the worst records of getting out of the pandemic economically. But I I look at um, the performance of Mr. Varadkar and uh, his colleagues, though I know he's now in a coalition. I look at that record with a good deal of envy.
0: Chris, thank you. Thank you very much. We've come to the end of the hour. It passed very quickly. I'd like, first of all, to thank the audience, because I think the quality of the questions was a sign of how uh, thriving the ea is. Um, but above all, I'd like to thank you for your openness and for your interesting uh, presentations. Um, you're obviously very passionate, and you've spoken about this before, about the threats to liberal democracy. Uh, we have to wait and see how optimistic we can we can be about that, but certainly the fact you're grappling with those issues is a reason for optimism. And the other thing that, just in conclusion, struck me is that you know you you obviously have huge knowledge uh, and wisdom about many many specific areas. But one of the, the great things is the interconnectedness of your wisdom. The way, for example, you identified three specific uh, learnings from setting up the PSNI that could be applied to a completely different situation in in North America. I, I think that's that's a fascinating aspect of. Of, of your presentation to us and your reply to the question. So, Chris, on behalf of all of us and on behalf of the IAEA, I'd like to thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank, thanks very much. Um, just two final thoughts. First of all, I can't remember who first said um, that you can lock up people, but you can't lock up an idea. And secondly, I remember that I'm, I, I, I'm unfashionably these days still a still a passionate admirer of Thomas More rather than Thomas Cromwell. And I remember that passage um, which Robert Bolt writes in A Man For it All Seasons. When Moore is dealing with Roper and trying to explain to Roper why even the devil um, needs, needs to have recourse to the law. And he says to Roper, you cut down all the laws and you are turning them into, bar- into a barren area and who protects you then from the wind? And I hope that's um, true about Hong Kong. I hope something will protect it from the wind.
0: Well, Robert Bolt also puts uh, other words in Thomas More's mouth. He says, God made animals to serve him in their innocence, plants to serve him in their simplicity, but man he made to serve him wittily in the tangle of his mind. So thank you for serving us all in the tangle of your mind, Chris. Thanks, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, the Institute of International and European Affairs. Join the discussion on iiea.com and access our engaging videos, blogs and podcasts.